and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co-hosts, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Kate. (laughs) Hi, guys. (laughs) That's how I feel, too. And we're actually recording this on Wednesday morning, so we're... We've gone through last night, the election uh, night, and we're all pretty dazed and phased and uh, forlorn and upset. And um, I don't know. How how did you guys make it through last night? Well, I think this is not a good attitude to have, but my attitude is generally resigned to whatever evils may come. But there had been moments when I had allowed myself to be optimistic and just... I feel like last night I was just kicking myself for for letting myself have that. Um, Maybe that's too dark and it's too dark of a way to start, but I don't know. I just sort of, I think I just stared at the screen for the most part. How about you guys? You know, it's so funny, Dea, that you say that because I think that there's like a biographical reason because my husband, who, you know, I've talked about on the show before, is Cuban-American and, you know, the child of, of exiles. And I, I think that there is the same kind of like resignation. You know, he had long believed that it was very likely that Trump was going to get reelected, you know, despite all of the polls and all of that kind of thing. And I think his reaction last night was very much the same, Medea. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think there's like something about the like hauntology of a more immediate experience of dictatorship that's like, oh, sure. Yeah, that can definitely happen here. Yeah. Um, yeah. In a way, I was like, well, how silly to to believe that again maybe this is too bleak but was it very silly to believe that that anything different could have been the message of this election and and we should you know we should say it's obviously not over at all and it, it yeah. is actually potentially looking pretty okay for Biden but should we talk about why it felt even if the outcome is is not so bad why we're sort of feeling upset <laughs> <laughs> is this too yeah. therapy? <laughs> no, I, you know, I want to say that um, something that happened to me shortly after Trump was elected in 2016, and I was pregnant at the time, and I was crossing the street in San Pedro, and um, this woman almost hit me in a car. Oh my god! Uh, like, you know, I was—it was my right away. She she started to go, and then when I was kind of like threw up my hands, like, "Hey, like I'm in the street," she looked at me and she just mouthed, "Shut up." And I was so shocked, like, I can't believe, like, there's someone out there who wouldn't just apologize for almost hitting you. Like, the fact that she hated me for pointing it out, it was so unnerving. And it was kind of this feeling of, like, oh, my God, like, there are a lot of people in the world who just don't don't have your back. Yeah. And I guess I, I live a real privileged, naive life before that because I hadn't felt that so much before, even if I had run-ins with scary people and, you know, been assaulted and whatever, like the, the normal life of a of an average woman. But um that that was a really chilling moment for me. And uh, in so many ways, that's how I felt last night. Even as I kind of said, oh, whatever, I, you know, I, I kind of expect that Trump could win and we can all, we all know how to live with it at this point. And we can all handle it because we've been dealing with it for four years. You know, as the the results started to come in, I really did feel that that just alienation from from my fellow citizen. Just like, how could you? I think that's exactly the word, Kate. It's the alienation from one's fellow citizens. I mean, I've been 
over the last, like, to say nothing of the past three years and change, but definitely over the past month, just this feeling that it's like, that A, we live to use the, that tortured metaphor, that it's like we live in in two different Americas. Like, there are other people that are having a, not just like a vastly different experience of life, but rather like a totally different value system. Like that it's like you can't agree on the most basic of things. Like that that was how I kept feeling as the, you know, we were watching with some friends and there was a definite moment where the the mood just soured, you know, where it was like, oh God, this really looks like it could be the unthinkable, which is the re-election of Trump. It's just unfathomable to me that so many of my fellow Americans could be watching the same disastrous administration and presidency that Trump has presided over these last couple of years and still see that as something that they want to keep moving forward with. I mean, that that is just the, the fundamental break for me that I, I just cannot fathom how this person with everything that we know about him um, and everything that we've heard him say and seen him do was not enough to convince such people that we should not put him back in office again. It shouldn't be stunning to me, but it is. It is. Yeah, yeah I think alienation is a really good way to put it. I think as I was watching the, the map sort of fill out, you do sort of begin to feel more and more isolated, I think, yeah. uh, in terms of values and opinions and and an understanding of what the past four years have been and and the ways in which you know my sense is like oh no most we should be ashamed we should be ashamed that this is that this has happened there should be some action within being ashamed to right the wrongs and it's just there's just not there and it feels like it's hard being articulate in within yeah. this, um, yeah. because it's so it's so it's confound it's really confounding. It feels like a completely different form of moral functioning of understanding the world, of understanding what's acceptable, what isn't, of understanding what should be allowed within a public discourse, what should be totally condemned. Separating one child from a family is sufficient. I can't understand. I just can't, I can't understand it. It's very, I, yeah, very I, you know, it's, it's also um, that I think there's a lot of baggage just with, you know, even with Biden, there's a lot of baggage for people about his policies and his past. And it's not that I can't understand that, you know, but I also feel like the, the sense of pragmatism in politics, like what's the aim really? What, what, what do we want? Not just about, okay, well, this person did that. This person did this. I mean, how, how will it affect your life personally? And I guess for some people, there's not that urgency. It just doesn't seem like it, it won't make a difference who's elected. So I want to mention a website that our producer, Alan Minsky, told us about. It's called protecttheresults.com. And that's somewhere you can go in these next few days to learn about What's happening? Legal actions, uh, organized protests. Um, they're they're closely monitoring the Trump administration's um, possible hijacking of the election and, and just in general vote counts. And I, I think that you know all of us right now are just in this waiting game. And I think yeah. that that could be a good place to check out uh, for those of us who are feeling like 
it's going to be hard these next few days to know what to do with ourselves. And I, and I should also say, I don't want to bury the lead here too much in that we do have an interview this week and it, um, it's actually a really perfectly timed interview in a lot of ways because some of the issues that we've been talking about, like, um, you know, being close to people who we don't agree with or who might not you know, agree with us or trying to find some intimacy with our fellow citizens and neighbors and family. And also just a kind of a, a, a embrace of not knowing. And it's a novel by Brian Washington called Memorial. This book is, it's very happy. So it does, in some ways it doesn't completely fit my mood, but it's many of its themes are just, if you could find the space to, to not feel so stressed, it's, it, I think it's a good thing to uh, listen to right now. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and there's many moments in it, I think, of, of families gathering together despite really not agreeing with each other, sort of fundamentally, not agreeing with each other in terms of their identities. And maybe that's a nice thing to, to witness, even if it's fictional. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. I was like, there is a, there is a kind of very um, a sense in that novel of the the redemptive power of love, right? Of of love being able to like overcome some of those differences, even though that they're they're still there, or to kind of recognize love where there is difficulty. But I don't I don't know if I'm totally there this morning. But yeah, it's a it's a beautiful novel that meditates on all these kind of difficulties of communication and relation in ways that is, yeah, as Kate said, are feel poignant in the moment. True. Yeah. I don't think I'm there. I don't know if I want to be embracing anyone who I don't agree with right now, but um, ultimately it's kind of the only way. Actually, I did a lot of phone banking. So I did talk to a lot of Trump voters, but some of them were very civil with me and I'd still get if they were like in the South or something and talk to a nice woman in West Virginia who was like, take me off your list. I'm not even a Democrat. Um, she's still like, kind of like, okay, darling, have a good day. And I was like, yeah, okay. That's something. I mean, at least we could have some niceties, even if those feel, you know, like way beyond the point at this moment and like feeling more like I want to go out in the street and, I always want to like cover my, I always like have this fantasy of um, like covering myself in blood and like walking, walking down the street and scaring people. And that's like that how I would, awesome. like, that's how I would like to protest. Just like, just as like disgusting as, and, and abhorrent as I could be. Like I, maybe I'll get the opportunity to do that this, this week sometime. But um, besides from that, I also, you know, it's important to, to cultivate that, that just uh, whatever acceptance of our, of the people around us, even if we hate them too at times. My fantasy is to roll into a ball and have somebody just very, very tight and then just have somebody put me in a drawer and then close the drawer and lock it. <laughs> I, I think that's the same for me, Dan. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, just put me in like, I just want to be in a coma or something, which is definitely the like, the the wrong way out. I think that Kate's like kind of more called to something active and and actionable is yeah, is, 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 worth, is worth holding on to. But totally. I feel you, Dea, in the like, just please put me in a drawer. Put well, maybe I could I could like push you guys down the street in your drawers. In our drawers, yeah. <laughs> just roll us in our tight balls down the street. I would love yeah. that. <laughs> okay. Well. Let's- 
Hopefully we won't have to do that, but um, we'll see. Anyways, maybe, maybe we should listen to this interview. That sounds okay. good. We're excited to have Brian Washington join us on the line today. Brian is a Houston-based writer and the author of the multiple award-winning debut collection, Lot. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Paris Review, and Bon Appetit, because he's also quite the cook, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a little bit. Brian joins us today to talk about his debut novel, Memorial, which centers on the relationship between Ben, a black daycare worker, and Mike, his boyfriend, a Japanese-American chef, as they struggle to navigate their love for one another after Mike suddenly takes off for Japan to be with his dying father, leaving Ben behind with his mother, Matsuko, who has herself just flown into Houston from Tokyo to visit her son. So lots of crossings. The novel deals deftly with questions of intimacy, families both biological and chosen, and stigma in ways that are at once timeless and very much of our moment. We are thrilled to have you. Welcome to the show, Brian. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, y'all. Thanks for being here. So, Brian, I want to talk about how you write. I know that's a big question to start off with, but something that really struck me about the novel is how uncannily contemporary the speech is, and in a way where it feels like it's almost... It's hard to believe it's written because it just feels so much the way people talk these days, which, you know, is a really hard thing to reproduce. It seems like so naturalistic in that sense. I was wondering if you pare down a lot, if you use source material, like actual real text that people send you, like, how do you mimic contemporary speech so well? Well, thank you. <laughs> like it's one of those things where you don't know if you're doing it or doing it well until like you kind of have to hear from other folks if, if it actually works. But it's largely the result of paring down. The book itself was roughly eleven drafts or so, and the way that I went about editing it and I suppose writing it by way of that is the conceit is that the novel is in three parts. I wrote the first part, and then I immediately began the second part. And then I edited the first in tandem with the second. And then I jumped from the second to the third. And then I edited the third in tandem with the first and second. And that revolution constituted one edit. And the book went through seven of those, just me by myself. Another two with my agent, Danielle Bukowski. And then about two more with my editor, Laura Persiusepi. So... Much of those earlier drafts were overwritten, I suppose, if you were to compare it to what eventually became the text. But I needed to have a sense of what the entirety of a conversation sounded like and also what the silences within each character's conversation sounded like before I went about pairing it down to what the intent was to be closer to lived speech and real life speech. Because most conversations like in actual life if you were to transcribe them they'd just be fucking boring like how are you how are you like i'm doing like it's you know one another and just sort of talking so trying to figure out how not to do that was a significant chunk of the actual editing process can you tell us a little bit the characters are so distinct 
and lived in, yet also unexpected. I think particularly for me, the character of Mitsuko, Mike's mother, who's like very brash and acerbic, <laughs> like a no-nonsense in a way that I really liked. Can you talk a little bit about kind of where these characters came from for you as you were putting together the story? Yeah, originally it was a short story and it was only about six pages or so. And when I'd finished it, I was still in the middle of writing what I thought would be the second project and it was just going horribly. And I kept returning to Ben and Mike and Mitsuko partly because it was easier and more comfortable to write in their voices because I felt like I had a better sense of understanding of who they were. And partly because the concerns that they had and you know the thematic concerns of that particular short story were ones that felt dear to me and ones that felt as if though there wasn't a clear answer and one that seemed as if they were just outside of a binary loop. And that was, you know, really fascinating to me, but not fascinating enough to me to leap into it as a project because I did not Mm. think that it would be an interesting thing that people would want to read, you know, a narrative without too much drama, so to speak, whether explicit or implicit. And without very many, if any, clear-cut answers as far as what happened literally on the page or even thematically. But a large part of me actually writing the book and perhaps even finishing it was that I wanted to know more about not only those characters, but what their dynamic could ultimately yield. So I learned a lot more about them as I went about writing the text and certainly more as I went about editing it. It seems to me, I mean, you're talking about the dynamic between the characters, but that a large part of the dynamic here is about caretaking and the process of caretaking and how how people do that for each other or don't do that for each other within families and also within romantic relationships and just in friendships too, I think, in this book. And tell me if this is a personal question, but would you talk about your experience with caretaking? Is there a kind of caretaking that you grew up with that feels familiar to you and Did you encounter another one when you got into a relationship? Or do you have an urge to take care? The book really seems preoccupied with that question. It's a very personal question. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Of, you know, comfort and pleasure are certainly themes and motifs that I find myself returning to, whether intently or inadvertently. I'm still figuring out. I think I'll have to write a little bit more before that solidifies itself one way or another. But I think the one thing that was consistent as I was growing up in Houston and that has held consistent as I've gotten a chance to live in other places, to be in relationships and out of those relationships and in other relationships is this motif of love being a verb as far as love being an active thing, a thing that you do. And I'm deeply interested in characters that are in the process of figuring out what the verb of it means to them, what the language of love that is most amenable to them, but also amenable to the folks around them looks like. And I think that in the novel, Ben and Mike find themselves oscillating between a number of different routes to get what each of them ultimately thinks 
they're looking for, even if that thing changes, whether it's through conversation and perhaps missing those connections, whether it's through texting, whether it's through sending one another photos to get at the feeling of an idea as opposed to the literal meaning of it. And I think that one thing that each of them lands on in various capacities is this idea of cooking and providing literal comfort and literal pleasure to one another, like very concretely, and creating a space for one another where there's perhaps not that, or perhaps creating one that's a bit more comfortable between them. And Mitsuko, in a lot of ways, is the sole character throughout the text that is constantly looking to comfort folks, you know? I mean, within the first handful of chapters, she is a woman who has landed in her son's city that she herself has not been in for some time, but her son is immediately leaving to go after his largely estranged father and not only leaving, but leaving her with his maybe partner that she's never met and only somewhat conditionally heard about. But the first thing that she does is cook him a meal before any of the rest of it. So really trying to figure out how the characters negotiate that space between comfort and pleasure and how they go about giving it to the folks around them was a knot that was really interesting to me and trying to entangle it over the course of the text was a pretty big goal of mine. I feel like in the book, there's food has played such a role, not only in Mitsuko making some food for Ben, like there's this moment where he comes home and he finds some rice that she's made and left for him and it's still warm. And it's a really caring gesture, but at the same time, she's a little bit dubious of him and not so warm with him, but it speaks volumes in a way maybe she can't say how she feels, but she makes the rice. And I think also maybe being in really a diverse city like Houston, similar to Los Angeles, there's this way that food becomes a much easier way of interacting among people of different ethnicities and backgrounds than anything else. Like it's not as contentious a space to go and eat in a Vietnamese restaurant or a Salvadorian restaurant than it might be to contend with those differences that you may have with someone else. Like food is a great entryway. I kind of felt that in the book, that the food also speaks as a metonym for the mingling of cultures. I just wondered if you could talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's certainly something that holds true for Houston specifically, and that you have so many different folks from a litany of religious communities, of ethnic communities, of various financial platforms of various stages in life. And for the most part, they're largely able to make a community made up of one another in addition to their respective communities. And I think that one of the ways in which they do that is through the sharing of cuisine and whether by choice or not, because we don't have zoning here, the sort of mingling and mixing of communities and cultures and the things that they eat and the ways in which people come together or don't. And that was and is a really interesting thing to me because it's not one that has a clear-cut catalyst, you know? Like there's not like a definable cause and effect for how communities come together or don't and what they utilize and how they stay together or don't. So thinking of it for each character, I mean, taking Mike, for example, he's this younger, queer, Japanese-American guy, and yet he has made 
a home in a home that he loves in one of the country's oldest historically black neighborhoods and thinks of himself as being a part of that community and is a part of that community and speaks to that community through his cuisine, through providing it for his neighbors, through working around the neighborhood. And that is not a terribly rare thing in Houston. You know, if you told me that Mike or someone like Mike was living down on Scott Street, it wouldn't be something that I'd blink at. And yet, while it's deeply unremarkable, I suppose, like living here and having come up here, it is an objectively interesting thing. So this question of how someone decides what community they belong to and what that community looks like and perhaps what happens when there's dissonance between the community that someone thinks they belong to, the community that they are sort of told they're meant to be a part of, and where they ultimately end up is really interesting to me. And trying to figure out what that looked like for each of the characters, whether it was Mike, whether it was Benson, whether it was Mitsuko, was really important to me, you know, just trying to see how they operated within the context in which they were comfortable and also the context in which they were uncomfortable and who they were, and not only who they were, but who they chose to be when they were no longer told who they were meant to be or when the contexts or the factors within those contexts imparting their wills upon them were no longer there, right? Like if a character is free or a person is free to be who they want to be or how they envision themselves, then what does home look like for that particular person and how do they go about making it? I don't think that there are definable answers for that, but they were questions that preoccupied me for most of writing Memorial. Along those lines, I mean, one of the things that I think I took away from this novel, and Kate gets at this, I think, in the style question also, is how realistic the representation is. So there's like, as you're talking about Houston and how there's a kind of relationship between the character of Mike and like, you could see that person walking around or you would imagine that that person could actually live there. I found, to take just one example, both Ben and Mike's parents struggle with their son's homosexuality, but not in a way that is typically what we see represented in quote-unquote gay stories or literature. I would say there's like two binary opposites. They're either like violently abusive anti-gay bigots or they're like P-flag parents. And I feel that like the parents, both Mitsuko, Mike's father in Japan, as well as Ben's parents, they use the term fag, for example, or they might be uncomfortable acknowledging their son's relationships with men or what the futures of those relationships might be. But there's never really any sense that they've totally cut off their children or that they no longer love their children, right? To me, this seems like a very realistic experience of generational difference over the question of homosexuality or queerness. And can you just talk a little bit about how you went about doing that kind of portraiture? Because it seems that you've captured something I don't often see. Yeah, I think that there is a certain version of Memorial that could have been written that does well, where each of the leads, Ben and Mike, and also their respective fathers, whether it's Eiju and Osaka or Ben's dad, operate in binaries. And you have the son that's been cast away from the rest of the family, or you have the deeply and immediately accepting family unit where right. 
nothing is awry except for maybe a little bit of light friction prior to the sort of trope coming out moment and then you know the narrative's done so to speak and there are folks who could write that narrative and there are folks who could write it really well but it wasn't one that i was interested in reading myself can you talk about why that is what kind of grates against you with that type of binary representation it's largely reductive for the most part and i think that but most any time I'm sort of negotiating with fiction, I'm looking to get as close to a simulacrum of reality as I can. And the idea of characters operating within those binaries didn't really seem as if though it were the reality that these characters were negotiating and facing. And I think that one thing that was important to me for the novel that I knew from the outset is that I wanted each of the characters to approach one another and to interact with one another from a place of love as opposed to immediate and pervading animosity or a sort of pervasive disdain for one another. And I wanted each of the characters to have the capacity for growth and the capacity to grow closer to one another regardless of whether or not they actually capitalized on that capacity or the sort of space that they could close with one another. So that generational divide over how the fathers see their respective sons, and not only that divide in age, but also the language that they utilized when they spoke to their sons and when they interacted with their sons was one that I was really interested in parsing, right? The sort of liminal space between what's said and what's intended and what's understood. For Ben to be having a meal with his father in a diner and his father is casually using slurs, but for Ben to hear what's said and then to know what was intended and then to articulate it however he articulates it and to have friction between each of those three entities was really an interesting thing to think about because I feel like that's truer to life. I think it's very, very seldom to be accepted unambiguously by anyone in your life, you know, (laughs) let alone in these particular contexts that Mike and Vincent find themselves in with their respective families. So trying to figure out how to tell this story in such a way that no one was a clear antagonist as far as the narrative is concerned was really important to me. And particularly as the coming out narrative is concerned because other people have said this, but that is in itself is kind of an intellectual dishonesty, right? Because the coming out narrative in a lot of ways implies that it's a thing that you do and then it's done. Benson and Mike, in all of their interactions, are constantly deciding how much of themselves are going to reveal to the people around them, whether it's a stranger at the grocery store, whether it's someone that they meet at a bar, whether it's someone that they meet at work, whether it's a dear friend that they have or someone who becomes a dear friend or someone that looks or seems as if they'll become a dear friend. But you don't quite know how close you want to get to them, so you hold things about yourself. That felt really true to life and like 
moments and relationships that I've experienced and moments and relationships that my friends have experienced. So trying to figure out how to put that narrative where it's more illustrative than prescriptive or definitive for what these relationships need to look like or what the terms of these relationships need to look like was really the goal on my end. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We now return to our conversation with Brian Washington, author of Memorial. Both Ben and Mike come from these families that aren't exactly like functioning, you know, that well. Both fathers are alcoholics, they're estranged from their ex-wives. Um, the notion of this like perfect heteronormative family is is kind of discarded in the novel and even long-term monogamy doesn't necessarily seem like this goal of anyone. So there's a lot more focus on community in some ways. Like that seems like the thing that's less troubled. But at the same time, there's these neighbors that um, Mike becomes close with that distance themselves from their own gay daughter you know, and he learns that kind of later after already becoming close with them. So I think there's this other thing of, can you still be close with people that might not completely embrace you? You know, can you still be an active part of a community where there is a lot of difference of opinion, different beliefs? What do you think about that? I think that is definitely something that that's a really generous and thoughtful read and I appreciate you saying it, but I think it's something that surfaced later on in drafts for me because that is another question that doesn't really have a clean answer and it's not a question that is easily definable in a lot of ways, you know? And even if you're a person in the world and you have a hard and fast rule, like if this person uses these sets of, you know, homophobic dictives, then I'm never going to interact with them. What happens when you meet someone that you do want to have a relationship with in whatever capacity, whether it's, you know, platonic, whether it's like just like a neighbor or like a, an acquaintance of a friend and you find yourself in conversation with them and it comes up. That liminal decision space is really interesting to me. And in a lot of ways, that's where the narrative is within those interactions because regardless of what a character chooses to do, the question of why is just going to be inherently interesting to me. So Mike befriends his neighbors who are several generations removed from him and builds this relationship with them only to find from you know, their daughter, that they're deeply homophobic. So does this negate the relationship that he has with them? I don't know. Uh, Perhaps it changes, and maybe it changes significantly. But the question of what it'll ultimately look like and why it's changing and what form it will take and how both parties will adjust to one another is really not one that has like a clear definitive answer. And I think in narratives where it does have a clear and definitive answer, that's a little bit boring in a lot of ways. It's not, you know, it's not terribly true to life. 
Is that something you've experienced yourself just living in Houston for so long and, and being close to various people there? I think that's something I've experienced as like a queer person in the world, you know, like constantly trying to decide like how much, uh, well, maybe not now because we're all in like pandemic hell and, you know, sort of seeing the same people over and over again, but like more generally, you know, constantly trying to figure out how much of yourself you want to reveal to someone and constantly reacting to the impressions that perhaps someone is enforcing upon you, you know? I mean, I think that my specific experience in Houston has largely been really generous and really fruitful, and I haven't had many instances or experiences of explicit homophobia or homophobic outbursts elicited on me specifically, and yet, you know, when my boyfriend and I go to pick up barbecue a few weeks ago and several people in the barbecue joint sneer while the young woman who's bagging our barbecue could not be like a kinder person and like more thoughtful and more attentive, that there's like a narrative there because the question becomes, yeah. like, can we go back there? You know, like they were really shitty and yet this other party that was here was deeply kind, right? So do we cast it off and do we cast that community off and do we cast that sort of geographic point off entirely? Or is it a negotiation and a conversation that we have to make with ourselves and one another? So those negotiations and conversations, I think, are a constant occurrence for me specifically, but I think that those are negotiations and conversations that we all make in various capacities. You know, I, as you're speaking about this, Brian, I, I'm thinking also about the way in which you handle, I guess I would, the, this isn't exactly the right word, but like kind of the both Ben and Mike's negotiation of stigma, Right, so there's we've talked a little bit about like homophobia and how they they manage that, but there's also you know like fat phobia, which kind of Mike brings up every once in a while in his own ways. There's the stigma against people who are HIV positive, which Ben navigates at at several key moments in in ways that I find so refreshingly realistic to what I've seen of that experience. And as it is lived right now. And then also, obviously, you know, racism, which they both deal with. But what's interesting to me is that none of these kind of forms of stigma or their negotiation, which could have been at the center of the novel, right? This could have been a novel that was about race or was about being HIV positive. And yet, it feels almost fresh in the sense that it's like this is part of the dailiness of the characters' lives. These are all things that they are constantly negotiating, constantly navigating, kind of, you know, living through and then like coming out of and going back into. Can can you just talk a little bit about how you treated those things without ever kind of like forcing them into the center of the story in a way that would feel like one was taking up too much weight? Yeah, I think that what surfaced pretty early on in drafting was that I wanted to write a novel in which many different things could be true simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Although what that looked like and how to do it structurally proved not to be as simple as deciding that I wanted to do it. But 
there is, you know, a version of Memorial that capitalizes on the trauma of Ben's status for the entirety of the narrative, right? And that wasn't a book that I was interested in writing, and it certainly wasn't one that I was interested in reading, because while it is certainly true that the American South in particular is in the middle of an HIV epidemic and has been for some time, and that HIV epidemic is largely concentrated on the South's Black residents, and within that demographic, we're on track for one out of every two Black cis men who have sex with men to be paused in the very near future, which is just an incredible statistic. And there's a version of Memorial where that is the story and Benson's negotiation of it. And I'm sure that someone could have written it and it would have been really compelling. But what was interesting to me for Benson wasn't his status solely and it wasn't his negotiation of it solely so much as just who he was as a person. And while his status may certainly characterize his personhood, it's not the entirety of it. And I think that the same is true for Mike when it came to this question of fat phobia that he was negotiating and dealing with his weight on a personal level and also on an interpersonal level, right? There's certainly conversations that he's having, whether with himself or with others. And it's certainly in the foreground of many of his interactions and many of the decisions that he makes or doesn't make as far as getting close to someone or choosing not to get close to them or immediately escaping the pool of a possible relationship or circling around the idea of a possible relationship sort of geared up for it to go awry because of his weight or his physical appearance. But while it might be in the foreground and while it might be implicit within each of his interactions, that's not who he is entirely, you know? So trying to write a narrative in which characters could negotiate challenging situations and for structural or whether personal, there weren't clear answers while simultaneously having a story about the things that they love and the things that they don't like and the things that they like to eat and they're having sex or not having it and connecting with one another or drifting away from one another and negotiating that drifting and deciding whether or not they want to reverse it was more important to me and seemed like a better story, frankly, than one that solely existed within the margins of capitalizing on the trauma of any particular character. So part of this book takes place in Houston, as we had mentioned, and then another part, there's three parts to it, but the second part is in Japan, because Mike goes back to Japan to um, take care of his sick dad. I was wondering, why did you choose Japan? Why set it, why set part of the book there? What is it about the the culture or the food? It seems like you're really into the food. Plenty to be into. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is it about Japan that, that drew you there? 
That I don't have as like sexy of an answer for that. <laughs> you know, for the past like five or six years in like non-pandemic times, I've been really privileged and fortunate to uh, be able to pass through Osaka um, yeah. once or twice a year because I have friends out there now. And the first few times I wasn't there looking to, you know, exist in that space in like an academic capacity or to like monetize it in any way or even you know, imbue it into narrative form so much as just to hang out and, you know, sort of lay around and be with friends. And I quickly realized that I was experiencing and being privy to a real warmth and a real generosity within the city, whether from friends, whether it was from strangers or, you know, strangers who since become very good friends that was just deeply interesting to me, right? Like whenever a place has a warmth about it and whenever its residents have a generosity about them in a very singular way, and whenever, you know, a place is able to cultivate community and a deeply diverse community, whether it's ethnically diverse, whether it is just diversity of life experience, that is always just really fascinating to me, frankly. So what became the project for me in a lot of ways, or you know, a part of the project was trying to imbue the narrative with the warmth and generosity that I've gotten to experience both in Osaka and also in Houston. And trying to structure each scene and each movement within, you know, those respective geographic points so that each city was a character in and of itself. And each city had a very particular context that the characters were making their way through whilst they were also, you know, interacting with one another and figuring their own shit out. It was important to me because it was just not something that I'd seen done the way that I wanted to try doing it, right? To And for these cities in particular in tandem with one another in the same narrative, so to speak. Like, I hadn't seen that, and I thought, you know, it might be interesting to me and for other people, so what about trying to do it? It's funny to hear you talk about going to Japan and experiencing this warmth because I think, you know, one of the things that comes through in this book is that, and we kind of talked about this when you talked about food, but is the is a kind of failure of language sometimes. You know, there's many, many moments when Ben and Mike talk to each other and you're like, just talk to each other. Just say more. Just say more to each other because you, there's more to say and you won't. Um, but that, that's not their comfort level, right? That That's not that's not exactly how they communicate their their love for each other always and um, and their warmth. So it's it's funny to hear you say that because it seems like Japan almost literalized or, or made it explicit that there's warmth beyond a linguistic connection, right? There's warmth beyond language or conversation. There's warmth that can exist within a community. Yeah, I think that trying to conjure the many different forms of that warmth and that comfort and pleasure could take on the page for each of the characters in 
their respective capacities and in very singular capacities was something that proved to be a challenge, but they proved to be arcs that, you know, and roads that I wanted to go down. I mean, I think that there is a reading of Memorial sort of implicitly in there where Benson is ultimately someone who figures out how to speak up for himself. And it's mirrored in what actually happens in the text, but also just the structure of it or the intent is to be mirrored within the structure of it in that largely in the first part, many of Benson's sections are quite sparse. There are some in which he doesn't say like a damn thing at all, right? Like just his sort of interiority and thinking about things. Whereas by the last section, which is also his, some of those sections or many of those sections are quite long, right? And extemporaneous and he's talking and he's thinking about things and articulating them. Whereas for Mike, in some ways, it's a book about someone who learns to listen and to sort of intuit what those around him want in that in the very beginning of his particular section, there are these long extemporaneous sentences that just go on and on in a lot of ways. And there are page breaks, but they're far and few between. Whereas by the end of it, his section, there are more silences and other folks are speaking a good deal more. And within the third section, the final section, which is also Benson's section, Mike does a lot more listening and a lot more intuiting of the needs of folks around him. And between the two of them, there's Mitsuko, who in a lot of ways the intent is for her to be the moral center of the novel in that Benson and Mike really don't spend too much page time together with one another and certainly not a lot of linear time together with one another. So a significant amount of how we see them and how they see themselves, particularly when they're reunited, is through their interactions with Mike's mom and how her steadfastness and her intuiting what they need respectively, even if they don't, even if that evades or goes beyond the sort of dialogue that they're sharing with one another, is something that they each take into themselves in various capacities. So trying to figure out how to make connections between characters and how people make connections with one another when it goes beyond dialogue, whether it's texting, whether it's sending one another photos, whether it's cooking, whether it's sex and the different kinds of sex that are had over the course of the novel, or at what point intimacy becomes sex or doesn't. And also what a family can look like, right? Like whether a family is simply blood, so to speak, or can a family be an assemblage of bar patrons who have made an agreement to meet at the same place at the same time. And while they certainly don't owe one another anything, whether explicitly or implicitly, they're tied to one another and they feel tied to one another and they feel obligated to one another and they're there for one another. So when the sort of codified legitimacies of a family aren't quite working for someone or they aren't quite working for someone within their current context and they're able to find that elsewhere, the question of at what point does that family become more 
valid than the one that they had prior, their idea of what a family was prior, whether both can exist simultaneously or whether a person will give legitimacy to that iteration of family were questions that I don't think that I was interested in answering, but ones that were just deeply interesting to me. In the book, you know, you take on the consciousness of of Mike and, and he's Japanese and you're not. And, um, I was, and there's been so much discussion recently in fiction of um, speaking from, you know, the voice of someone who is different than than the author. And I was wondering if you, where you fall. I mean, obviously you've done it, so you must believe in it to some degree. But um, I was wondering where you fall in that conversation and why, you know, you might you might think in fiction it's important to be able to take on all different points of view. Yeah, I, f- I appreciate the way that you asked that question as well because I've gotten it a few times. Like we're sort of like all over the place. I'm like ah, but I think that the question of whether you can write outside of yourself is a bit boring because the answer is yes, right? Because people do it, and you know some people do it quite well. But I think the weight of the intent behind that question, more often than not, is you know, the other two, three letter words that are perhaps more difficult than than can and imply work, which are how do you do that if you're going to in fact do it? And also why are you doing it? And the why of it is always more interesting to me and always more revealing to me and always a much more consistent litmus test then, you know, the can you do it, right? Like for the why of it, for Memorial, I was deeply interested in writing a novel about two young queer men from marginalized communities who are trying to figure out how to be okay with one another, but also just okay in the world and whether they can make a home in the world, in the context in which they're sort of told that this is your home, or new contexts and within communities that are perhaps not explicitly akin to the context and communities that one might immediately associate with them. And so the mixing of communities and the bending of those communities and having them interact with one another becomes deeply significant to not only the sort of thematic arc of the novel, but also on a scene by scene level, right? Trying to figure out what it means when Mike, an Asian American male is more comfortable in the third ward than he is when he returns, you know, to what his father would say is his home in Osaka. And what it means when Benson, you know, a queer cis male who's black, is able to find one of the closest semblances of family that he's able to find in an older Japanese woman. Right? Like that tension between what 
is expected within a community and what's expected within a relationship and what the lived reality of it is for a character was one that I was really interested in parsing and playing with. Well, I think we'll have to end it there. We could, there's so much more to talk about, but thank you so much for joining us, Brian. We've been speaking with Brian Washington, author most recently of his debut novel, Memorial. Thanks for joining us. Thank you all so much for having me. We've been speaking with Brian Washington, author of the novel Memorial. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.